the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Seth Liebson Show, hour number three. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Seth this afternoon. And uh, we are joined now by Isaac Orr. Isaac is a policy fellow at Center of the American Experiment, specializing in energy and the environment and natural resources. Isaac, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, John. I have not mentioned this yet today, but I am, in addition to uh, to being a proprietor of, of Powerline and, and having been a, a longtime lawyer, um, I, I am currently the president of Center of the American Experiment, which is a uh, policy organization, a think tank headquartered in Minnesota. And, um, and so Isaac is a colleague of mine, does a fantastic job on energy issues and related subjects. And Isaac, we're going we're gonna to bring this conversation around to Arizona specifically here in a few minutes. But I want to start by just talking about some of the basics of so-called green energy. You have done an enormous amount of work over the last several years analyzing the cost, the reliability, the environmental impacts of wind and solar energy in particular. And, and what, what, what's, what, what have you found in the course of doing all that work? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for setting that up so nicely for me, John. The the main takeaway for people when it comes to uh, wanting to integrate more wind and solar is that these <clears throat> sources of electricity only work when the weather is cooperating. And, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm, and there were a lot of times in the middle of summer, come August, where, you know, we would say, man, we really need a rain. So the the weather-dependent nature of wind and solar is a really big problem that a lot of people don't quite consider because we just don't have a storage mechanism to keep the electricity generated by them when the weather is cooperating for later. So, you know, a lot of people think that the easy part of having a grid with wind and solar is, uh, is you know, we've basically done the hard part by bringing down the cost. Uh, but that's actually not true. The, we, the easy part's over, and it's going to become exponentially more difficult to run our electric grid with these energy sources. And so one of the fundamental realities, Isaac, is that much of the time <laughs> these so-called green energy sources simply don't work. So the most efficient wind turbines in the world produce electricity, what, about 44% of the time? Yeah, there's a few in North Dakota that are 52, but, you know, on average, uh, as a country, you're looking at 33% of the time. And, you know, obviously the solar resource is better in Arizona, where it's about 28% of the time it's producing its maximum output. In Minnesota, it's 18, uh, for obvious reasons, right? Because it doesn't snow in Arizona, or at least not in, uh, not in the Phoenix area. I mean, if you have the Flagstaff, obviously it snows there. So, so what we're saying here, Isaac, is that the majority of the time, you can build all the wind turbines you want. You can erect all the solar panels you want. But the majority of the time, they don't do anything. They don't produce any electricity. So, 
So that being the case, since we all expect that when we flip the switch, the lights are going to go on, what happens during the 60% of the time or two-thirds of the time when the when the wind turbines aren't producing electricity? Yeah, during those times, you're turning on a natural gas-fired power plant, you're ramping up a coal plant, uh, or you know, you're, you're relying on nuclear power, right? So you have these reliable energy sources that make up the, the backbone of your grid. And if you have wind and solar on top of it, it's kind of just an unnecessary hood ornament on a perfectly good grid uh, is how I like to think about it. And in fact, all of these billions and billions of dollars that are being spent on wind and solar, they're, they're not being spent to meet demand, to meet rising demand, right? I mean, we, we've got reliable power plants running on coal, natural gas, uh, and uh, in some cases, hydropower and, and, and nuclear that are adequate for the country's electricity needs. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, electricity demand has been relatively flat in the United States for the last, you know, 20 years, essentially. So uh, but in places where you do see jurisdictions trying to meet their increasing electricity demand with wind and solar, the results haven't been good because that's essentially what Texas did has been doing for the last decade or so is they were trying to meet the increasing demand in energy because a lot of people are moving to Texas. A lot of, you know, heavy uh, petrochemical manufacturing, very energy intensive industries are, are moving to Texas. But they thought that they could just use wind and solar to uh, provide for that demand. But you can't because sometimes you'll have winter storm Uri where the wind turbines don't blow and the solar panels don't work. So uh, in those cases, you have a really bad circumstance. So. It's not you. You wouldn't want to uh, ever try to rely on wind and solar. And in fact, uh, since you can't rely on wind and solar, wherever you are, you are, you've got to have access to enough coal, natural gas, uh, nuclear, you know, reliable energy to meet 100 percent of your needs, or you're going to have blackouts. Isaac, did we lose you there? Uh, no, I'm here. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 um, one of the things that we hear green energy advocates say is that uh, wind and solar are actually price competitive with traditional, reliable uh, power sources. Now, I know that you and our colleague Mitch Rowling have done an enormous amount of analysis uh, over the last few years to to calculate the true cost of green energy, wind and solar, when you take into account all of the elements that you have to spend in order to produce electricity. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to say that uh, wind and solar advocates are very selective on what costs they talk about in the way that the uh, the lookout on the Titanic was very selective about how he, he felt about the size of that iceberg. So... Um, in the in the electricity generation world, you have a whole bunch of costs that are almost never discussed by wind and solar advocates. Uh, if you're building a lot of wind, you need to build a lot more transmission lines in order to connect those wind turbines to the rest of the grid. Those transmission lines routinely cost $1 million to $2 million per mile, and you also need to do that if you're building solar panels, but uh, you can generally like build those closer to your population centers, so the transmission cost isn't as steep. But you know, utility companies in this country 
are not private companies. A lot of people don't realize that they are government-approved monopolies. So they actually do not make money by selling their electricity in a competitive marketplace for the lowest possible cost. Instead, they are incentivized to build new things because uh, the Public Utilities Commission in Arizona uh, basically says the you know whether it's um, <clears throat> Arizona Power Company, uh, if you build this, you get to ret- uh, uh, you know reap a ten percent return on your your capital that you invest. So there's utility profits that go into this, and then there's also the cost of maintaining the reliable natural gas plants. Uh, for use when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. So you've got about three or four huge hidden costs that uh, the wind and solar folks never talk about. They only want to talk about the subsidized cost of wind and solar. And that doesn't even begin to compare with the value of, say, a nuclear power plant that can produce electricity every single hour of the day. It doesn't emit any pollutants, and it's a lot more affordable. So you and your colleague Mitch Rowling have developed, I think, the only statistical model in the country that is capable of calculating the true cost when you include all of those elements, transmission lines, utility company profits, the natural gas plants that you have to build to run when the wind isn't blowing, and so forth. Is that right? Have you guys got the only model that that, that can accurately calculate those true costs? Oh, yeah, we were pioneers in that field. Uh, when I show people the bar chart that shows wind and solar after you've you know, accounted for these costs that always occur with them, they're always like, oh, that's very cool. How do I get my hands on that? And, you know, we've done modeling in, I think, seven or eight states now, uh, including Arizona, on the cost of renewable energy. So uh, it's, it's fun to be wanted. And, and we're going to get to Arizona here after this next break. Isaac, but but uh, the, the the basic conclusion is the idea that wind and solar are even remotely cost competitive with the traditional sources of energy is absurd. They are vastly more expensive, and that's why they survive only because of government subsidies and government mandates. Let's leave it there for the moment, Isaac. We're going to run to a break, and we'll talk about Arizona when we get back. Yeah, you can always tell which of Seth's songs I like by how long I let them play before I before I come back to a guest or to a an issue in the in the news. I like that song. We are talking with Isaac Orr, policy fellow at Center of the American Experiment, specializing in energy issues. And by the way, if you go to AmericanExperiment.org, AmericanExperiment.org, you can learn an immense amount about energy, about natural resources, about the environment, and uh, and many other many other uh, uh, policy issues. AmericanExperiment.org. So Isaac, I want to pick it up now and and give our listeners a little bit of background on on the work that you did that was specifically relating to Arizona. And as I understand it, it starts with some provisions in the. Build Back Better bill, that's a $2 trillion extravaganza that, for now at least, is, is, um, has been held up in, in, in Washington. Uh, tell our listeners about that. Yeah, I like to call it Build Back Batter with an A and two Ds. But uh, the, the thing that was trying to get pushed through this reconciliation bill 
was called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. It was one of the most sweeping uh, energy proposals of all time. Uh, you know, it's not quite as, uh, you know, I don't know, unmoored from reality as the Green New Deal, but it was definitely one of the the most radical proposals for transforming how we get our electricity that's ever been seriously considered. And for that reason, it really merited our response because, uh, you know, Tina Smith is the senator in Minnesota and she co-sponsored this bill. And we knew that there was no way that we could ever convince Senator Smith that this bill, uh, which would have required a 4% annual increase in the amount of electricity generated from wind or solar uh, and cost hundreds of billions of dollars, right, for each state, um, was we were never going to change her mind. But we could possibly have an impact on this conversation by educating people in Arizona and West Virginia, where the senators were probably a little bit more open to listening to our perspective about what the likely uh, cost of this program would be. So, Isaac, let's just pause for a moment because you, you said it here, but it went by kind of quickly. And I want to just make sure our listeners understand what, what's going on. So, so th- this is the Clean Energy Performance Program, so-called CEPP, which was just one of many parts of the Build Back Better legislation the Democrats uh, have tried to jam through through Congress. And the basic thing that it did as to green energy is that it would mandate that each state increase the amount of electricity that it was getting from wind and or solar by 4% a year for how long? Every single year through 2030, because uh, the, the reconciliation process only allows you to do things for a limited amount of time. So this was really um, the, the other thing about the, the CEPP, which is worthy of noting, is that if you did not meet your, your goal for you know, clean energy, quote unquote, right, um, you would be subject to a $40 per megawatt hour uh, fine for every, every you know, megawatt hour that was out of compliance with this. So um, if you look at this, you can kind of say, well, this is a stealth carbon tax. So uh, really what the, the Democrats in Congress were trying to do is they were trying to pass a renewable energy mandate and a carbon tax effectively uh, without having, you know, any sort of ability for, for recourse. Uh, they wanted to pretend that this was a, a fiscal matter, but it was very much uh, public policy. Right. And and um, and so you and Mitch, uh, oh, oh, I should back up for a moment. There, there, there was money in the bill to pay for this. Right. So so the sponsors of the, of the Clean Energy Performance Program didn't admit that it was an unfunded mandate. Right. They said, oh, don't worry, there, there's money in the bill to pay the costs. Is that right? So there was some money in the bill to pay for the cost but it was not going to be anywhere near enough to actually implement the program. So uh, the only way to really interpret that is they were expecting people to be non-compliant and pay fines to the Department of Energy in order to basically sustain the funding for this program. So it was another one of those um, kind of gimmicky budgetary games they were playing in order to start new government programs and then have them expire before the end of the 10-year period, but then 
hope that they would find another way of funding the program. And that's ultimately um, a big reason why Senator Manchin said, we do not want the clean electricity performance program. It's not going to happen. So, so let's having with all that background now, describe to our listeners what you did with respect to Arizona and what you found. Yeah, so we did a deep dive into the you know the types of power plants that provide electricity to Arizona and what it costs to generate that electricity, and then we decided, okay, well, if we increase the the amount of electricity that's generated by either wind or solar by four percent every year, what is that going to cost? So uh, Arizona used to be a lot more coal heavy than it is today, but 36% of its uh, electricity is generated with natural gas, 21% from coal, and 28% from nuclear, with pretty significant contributions from hydroelectric at 5% and solar at 5%. So um, this would have essentially transformed the electric grid to be 38% solar, 28% nuclear, uh, 16% uh, percent natural gas and uh, increase the amount of wind on the system. So uh, the only thing about this is this would come at an enormous cost of almost $120 billion over uh, a 30-year period. And we looked at it over a 30-year period because power plants are big investments like a house, and they get paid off over time, kind of like a mortgage. So um, just because this plan was going to um, only last for 10 years in Congress doesn't mean that Arizona families and businesses wouldn't be saddled with the consequences of this law uh, for decades to come. And so in one state alone, I want to make sure this number gets through to our listeners, in one state alone, the state of Arizona, the cost of these clean energy or clean electricity as a performance program mandates would have been how much? $120 billion. $120 billion cost imposed on the state of Arizona. And and the funding that was in the Build Back Better bill that was supposed to compensate the states and, and pay for these mandates, what? how much was that? Oh, I don't even remember. I think it was something comically low. Um, so they were, they were banking on the fact that this was probably going to make utilities noncompliant with the law and have to pay into the system. All right. Well, uh, listeners here in Arizona, uh, you dodged a $120 billion bullet when Isaac and Mitch ran the numbers, figured out the real cost to to Arizona of that program. And and the result, ultimately, Isaac, is that it's been stripped out of the Build Back Better bill. Is that right? That's right. It's dead as a doornail. All right. Well, congratulations, uh, and thank you for that. We are going to go to a break and be back after these messages. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We're on the home stretch here. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Seth, this evening, and by the way, I'm going to be back on Thursday, so please do tune in again uh, on Thursday. I will again be uh, guest hosting for uh, for Seth. You know, the last two years have been just brutal. Uh, the uh, COVID virus came out of China in all probability, having been concocted in a lab and then escaped from a laboratory, made its way around the earth inexorably, as viruses do being passed from one person to another. 
And, and around the country, governments took steps to try to slow or stop the spread of the COVID-19 virus. And if you think back to the situation as it was, I think it was two years ago now, right? Yeah, two years ago, governments were saying that we needed temporary shutdowns, temporary shutdowns. At one time, they were talking about, you know, two weeks 15 days to flatten the curve, right? Remember that? 15 days to flatten the curve. And and a lot of governors in particular freely acknowledged that shutdowns wouldn't ultimately stop the virus. You can't you can't stop a virus by telling everybody to stay home, but what they thought they could do is slow down the spread of the virus so that hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed all at once with sick people. So same number of cases, same number of hospitalizations, same number of fatalities, just trying to spread them out over a longer period of time. That was an honest rationale. It didn't turn out to be right, but that's what we were told originally by by uh, medical authorities and by and and by governors but the 15 days to to flatten the curve turned into 2 years of of restrictions on everybody's freedom and we saw massive shutdowns we saw orders that required businesses to close offices to close bars and restaurants to close health clubs to close uh, everything under the sun. Schools closed. That was maybe the worst of all. Uh, they they closed the schools. Did devastating, devastating damage to the younger generation. Uh, closing all those businesses um, did did devastating damage to all kinds of individuals, all kinds of small business owners in particular, all kinds of people who worked in places like restaurants and bars, as well as innumerable office workers. So these shutdowns went on, on and off, on and off, uh, depending on where you lived, for around two years. And, and other kinds of measures were taken as well, like mask mandates. There's many parts in the country where even today, if you go uh, indoors, uh, you're supposed to don a mask. That's, that's true, true in many towns. It's, it's done on a town-by-town level, but that's true in many towns in the state where I live, which is, which is Minnesota, including, for example, the city of Minneapolis. You're not supposed to go anywhere in Minneapolis without putting a mask on. And so, and so if you have followed this whole saga of the uh, COVID-19 virus, as I have over the last two years, and if you've seen data on the spread of the virus, on rates of hospitalization, on rates of fatality, and so forth, in, in my opinion, it has become rather obvious that all of these mitigation measures, all of these shutdowns, all of these mask mandates, uh, all of the exhortations that we've been subjected to by by governors and other public officials have had little or no impact, little or no impact. And I, and I say that in part because I have seen dozens of charts or graphs that show in a particular state, for example, or it could be a country, that show uh, the the official number of cases, COVID cases, the official number of COVID hospitalizations, the official number of COVID fatalities. And COVID has come in waves, as we all know, right? And and the different varieties of COVID have, have represented uh, separate separate waves. 
But if you take one of these waves and you impose on it the date when a shutdown went into effect or, or, or came off effect or the date when a mask mandate went into effect or the date when a mask mandate ended, you can't find any difference. The curve, the slope doesn't change. It, the slope of, of that curve is the same after the shutdown as it was before. It's the same when the shutdown ends, coming the other direction as it was before, and the same with mask mandates. So there's been a lot of suspicion that these things did tremendous damage, but did little or no good. And now we have what could be a definitive study that concludes that that's exactly what happened. And we're going to talk about that after this commercial break. We're back on the Seth Liebson show. I think we've got a couple of callers on the line. Let's 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 take calls first. Let's start with uh, Rob. Oh, hi, John. Um, I'm in Surprise, Arizona. I've been a longtime uh, reader of Powerline. Love what you guys do. Um, love Ammo Girl, and. And a lot of times, uh, I love your uh, comics that come out once a week. Um, I, the weekend pictures. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, the weekend pictures exactly. Um, I uh, I'm kind of surprised in a good way that Canada's done what it's done because well the truckers because it sounds to me like Canada's got the same problem we do with its you know quote unquote ruling class and its quote unquote media um they uh have media that are supporting uh those in charge and yet they're uh well they're wrong as always but they're providing cover for uh those in charge and that's just not what the media was designed to do and yet that's exactly what they do um and uh then when heather came on and i think she's awesome I started thinking about when did all of this start where, uh, you know, uh, anti-racism or black separatism, uh, you know, began? Um, I don't know. I mean, I thought I thought Martin Luther King kind of put the final stamp of approval on, you know, all men were created equal in our Constitution. And yet, you know, here we are 50 years later uh, where they want separatism they want uh, preferences and of course there's been you know affirmative action and yeah everybody seems to for rob everybody seems to forget 50 years of affirmative action i mean it's you know that we've all lived through it and yet apparently now we're supposed to forget about it i don't get it um and then uh the um the one of the problems i see is that uh, you know I, I am a regular caller with Seth, but um, I keep harping on that the wrong people are in charge, and they have no guts. They have no uh, principles. They have no uh, sense of standing up for what's right. And all of the things that we're seeing go wrong, uh, seems like people are allowing it to do it, and nobody's really standing up and saying, you know, stop it. Quit it. It's wrong. You know, Rob, um, this, I, I'm, mystif- I'm mystified by this as well. I mean, these people don't represent 
anything like a majority of the American people, the ones that want to teach our children critical race theory, you know, the ones that, the ones that, that want to do away with blind auditions in orchestras so we can discriminate on the basis of race. I mean, you, you go on and on down the line. These are not majority views. So why is it that on, on this whole complex of issues, the majority can't rule? Well, that, that's true. And, and speaking of which, I, I did want a quick uh, uh, input from you on how things are going in Minneapolis and uh, what's going on with Elon Omar. And I'm assuming the Minneapolis Star Tribune is providing cover for her um, and nothing has happened to her since. Well, you guys have been doing a great job covering her, but, you know, it's been sort of a big black hole for the last couple of years. Well, you know, Minneapolis is going down the drain, and that's one thing that's happening. I mean, something has to change, or it's it's a very sad situation. Ilhan Omar is cruising along, uh, enjoying the sort of beneficent uh, uh, publicity that she's gotten throughout her career. There's a big scandal going on in the Twin Cities right now. I think 100 FBI agents participated in simultaneous raids, and what's happened is that there was a – charity called Feeding Our Future, I think was the name of it, and actually a second mm-hmm. charity as well. Between the two of them, I, I think it was 300 and some million dollars. I'm going from memory, but it was into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And they ostensibly were, were feeding children under one of these COVID programs. And in fact, if you believe their filings, they were feeding one-eighth of all of the children in the state of Minnesota. Well, it turns out they were hardly feeding any children at all. And the money was being divvied up by the person who ran this charity, who was not a uh, Somali. But then most of the other people involved in the in the many, many frauds were Somalis. And so somebody would buy a house or they'd spend thousands of dollars uh, at uh, expensive hotels, you know, resorts. There was, there was a wedding of a young Somali girl and they brought out as a wedding present $100,000 worth of gold on a plate. Can you even imagine that? What would that look like? $100,000 worth of gold. Yeah. And it was all it was all stolen, you know, stolen money from this government program. And and so, you know, is there going to be a little bit of bounce back because this is this is the society, you know, that Ilhan Omar uh purports to represent and purports to uh to preside over. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very sad situation. And what's really sad is that she's got a district that's got so many white liberals in it who approve of her anti-Israel stance, her socialism, et cetera, that uh, it makes her very hard to beat. we got to go to another caller here. Have you still got Mike on the line? Let's, let's hear from Mike. Hey, John, how are you? Great. John, Powerline VIP, and uh, I, I have to joke with you that my wife says my happiest days are when I'm the top commenter on PowerlineBlog.com. <laughs> well, that should be a happy day. <laughs> it is. John, I think you make a really important distinction when it comes to, um, if I hear you correctly, the uh, effects of the lockdowns. Remember, at the initiation of COVID, we did not know how this virus was going to behave. And therefore, lockdowns were reasonable initially. The real travesty is not those initial lockdowns. It's that once it became clear that the virus was going to be endemic in the population, that we allowed 
uh, we as conservatives allow the uh, lockdowns to continue as an infringement on our civil liberties. And that's a distinction that uh, leftists can't make because we conservatives are much better at analyzing data, both prospectively and retrospectively, than are leftists. And we, it's important that we make that distinction. Well, I think you're right. And, and you know, I'm a little more skeptical than you about the lockdowns in the first instance. I was shocked when the governor of my state issued an emergency order that literally directed everyone in the state of Minnesota to remain inside their homes except as they were given permission by the governor to to leave their homes. I mean, I found it shocking from the beginning. But 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 I think your point is well taken. You know, whatever we could have thought 2 years ago, we've got data now. And when we come back for the final segment of this hour, that's what I want to talk about. There's a brand new meta study that's come out of Johns Hopkins that I think pretty much answers the question, did these lockdowns and these other mitigation strategies work? And, and I think the answer is they did not. So we'll be back with the details on that right after these messages. Seth Liebson once again demonstrates his good taste in music. This is the last segment of the program, and I want to follow through on something that I said I was going to talk about in the prior segment when we were talking about um, the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns and other measures. Did they work? And I think we, we have an answer to that question that may be definitive in a study that has just come out from Johns Hopkins University. This is a study that comes from the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise, done by three experts at Johns Hopkins. And the title of the study is A Literature Review and Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Lockdowns on COVID-19 Mortality. So what this is, is a meta-study, a study of studies. And they started by identifying several thousand studies of the effectiveness or impact of, of lockdowns and other strategies. And, and they, they winnowed that, that big universe down to just 24 that they considered to be the most reliable. These are the ones that were peer-reviewed. They lasted for a long enough period of time and so forth. So so what they did was to study these 24 studies and see what consensus emerged from them. And and they looked at these studies in three different groups. There was one group that were lockdown stringency index studies. In other words, they came up with methodologies for saying what states or what countries locked down the most, uh, medium, the least and so on and then compare outcomes. Uh, and then there was a second group that, that reviewed shelter-in-place orders, evaluated their effectiveness. And then there was a, a third group that looked at specific uh, mitigation measures, masking actually being one of them, to see whether those specific mitigation measures were found to have any, any positive benefit. And here's the conclusion. An analysis, I'm quoting here from the study, an analysis of each of these three groups support the conclusion that lockdowns have had little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. More specifically, stringency index studies find that lockdowns in Europe and the United States 
only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 0.2%, 0 0.2% on average. SIPOs were also ineffective, only reducing COVID-19 mortality by 2.9% on average. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible record. And they conclude this. They say, while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. I think that's a sound conclusion, and it is going to bring us to the end of this version of the Seth Liebson Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline. It's been fun to be with you, and I'll be back again on Thursday. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.